Good morning on this rainy morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your love and truth, and we just long to see you more clearly and draw closer to you. We ask that your spirit will enlighten us and help us move in your direction and be witnesses for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number five in the quarter of the book of Revelation, and the title is The Seven Seals. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the seals, we're going to read it out of the NIV, discuss the meaning of it, and then read it out of the remedy after we've discussed the meaning of it from the NIV. And since we're going to use the remedy um, after each one, I thought I'd just read the preface that I wrote to the book of Revelation in the remedy, just to kind of give you a perspective of where that may be coming from. So this is in the book of Revelation. I, I did a little more than paraphrase. I also added some decoding of the symbolism, some of which will be without controversy, such as Jesus the Lamb rather than just the Lamb. But other places might challenge various traditional views. The reason I decided to do this is not that I want to suggest I have, some, have been gifted with some special insight beyond any believer's prayerful study guided by the Holy Spirit, but to stimulate the reader to think. Throughout the rest of the paraphrase, I have used new words to get uh, at the real meaning and past cliché, such as remedy for gospel. In Revelation, I want the reader to move past symbolism to consider the cosmic reality beyond the symbol, a reality in which God is love all the time, and Satan is a real being of complete selfishness seeking to contaminate our minds with his lies about God. I have no doubt that as the future unfolds, events will require modification and reinterpretation of some of the conclusions I I have suggested in this book. The point is not that we need to know with total certainty every detail of every symbol, but to know God and Jesus, whom he has sent. You will therefore notice that all of the suggested interpretations always reveal God's character of love, working against Satan for the good of his creation. I hope you will enjoy reading Revelation and that it will stimulate you with a new appreciation for our amazing God. So that's kind of the background when we hear the remedy So in our lesson, first paragraph, uh, in Sunday's lesson, in Monday's lesson, excuse me, Monday's lesson, the events of the seven seals, excuse me, Sunday's lesson, that's right, it was Sunday, the events of the seven seals must be understood in the context of Old Testament covenant curses specified in terms of sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Ezekiel calls them God's four severe judgments. They were the disciplinary judgments by which God, seeking to awaken his people to their spiritual condition, chastised them when they became unfaithful to the covenant. In a similar way, the four horsemen are the means that God uses to keep his people awake as they await Jesus' return. Before we read uh, the seven seals, and we're going to go through six of them today, What's your understanding of the message contained within the book sealed with seven seals? What is that message? What's recorded there? Foreknowledge. Well, if you read the lesson, the lesson suggests this is the history of Christianity from the time of Christ starting the church until till the end of time. And it's covering the same period of time as the um, message to the seven churches. That's what the, the seven seals is another way of discussing the seven churches and the message. That's, that's the lesson, what the lesson suggests. I want to suggest maybe there's an alternative view, and you can either look at this as a replacement view or simply the Bible prophecy can have more than one application. If you remember with the seven churches, the lesson itself said that the seven churches can have a historic application, a prophetic application, and a universal application. Uh, Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24 has an application to um, Jerusalem at his time, but also an end-time application. So either way you want to look at it, that this is just an additional um, understanding or a replacement is okay with me. 
So in Tuesday's lesson of last week, in last Tuesday's lesson, there was a quote from Ellen White describing what was contained in the book with seven seals. And I want you to think as I read this, is this describing simply the time of the last 2,000 years? And this is what the quote out of nine manuscript release 7.2 is. It's in last Tuesday's lesson. The history of God, what contained the seven seals is the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in that role the influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of the earth's history till its close. If you value the description by Ellen White, does that sound like we're only dealing with human history for the last 2,000 years? No. So the conclusion that this is simply covering the time span of the seven churches really is not consistent with at least what Ellen White saw it. Um, For example, here are some things which were described in what she says is in the book, The Seven Seals. The history of God's providences, providences, God's providence, God's providence means, if you look it up, the foreseeing and caring of his creation. Did God foresee and begin caring for his creation only since the cross? No. The prophetic history of nations and the church. Well, we have Daniel. Clearly there's prophetic history prior to the cross. Divine utterances in God's law. Was God's law only manifested since the cross? Or is that an eternal law upon which reality is built? The whole symbolic counsel of the eternal. Think that through. That's an infinite description there. Something much more profound. The history of all ruling powers in the nations. What are the ruling powers in the nations? We, we think of any New Testament texts that we war against? Principalities and powers? What are those principalities and powers that we're warring against? Remember when Daniel uh, prayed and there was a, a Gabriel came and said, I was sent immediately, but I was you know, held up. I was held up because the prince of Persia was opposing me. Who's the prince of Persia? It's one of Satan's angels, one of the powers of that district or nation. Satan is called the prince of this world. The prince of Persia would be a subordinate working in the area of, and he said, I've got to go because the prince of Greece is coming to help him. It's another subordinate fallen angel that has territory that he's working in. I think that that's a critical point because included in the scroll has to be a, an evidence, a piece of evidence with the source of suffering and trouble and destruction on this earth is, yep. and it doesn't come from God himself. The history of all ruling powers in, in, the, in the nations, in the nations, very critical. From the beginning of earth's history to its close. Well, there you go. Beginning of earth's history is not, didn't start at the cross. I'm just making the point here that when we reject the conclusion that this covers the time period of the, of the Christian dispensation, that we're doing so on a very solid, reasonable, logical understanding. So, we, so what might else be contained if it's not just the Christian history? Could it be a broader revelation of the great controversy between Christ and Satan? Could that be it? Well, if that's the mind, let's, let's go ahead and start with the seals now. Revelation 6, 1 and 2, this is out of the NIV. I watched the Lamb open the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, 
And he was given a crown, and he rode out to conquer, bent on conquest. <clears throat> is this literal or is this symbolic? Symbolic. I'm going to ask that every time, so just be prepared for the answer. You guys can learn that one. Okay? I'm going to ask it every time. But, but it's important to reinforce that because you will see there's going to be some slippage in that in the quarterly. We're going to be symbolic, 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 and then suddenly we're going to jump the literal. It's going to be very interesting when that happens. You're going to go, why? Why do we do that? Because there's a certain bias, a certain prejudice, a certain pre-assumption that gets right into it. But, but, okay, we're symbolic. Let's look at one interpretation in the second paragraph. It says, although symbolic, good, right, although symbolic, Revelation 6, 1 and 2 is about conquest too. It brings to mind Revelation 19, 11 through 6, which portrays Christ as riding on a white horse and leading his heavenly armies of angels to deliver his people the second coming. As a symbol of purity, the color white is regularly associated with Christ and his followers. The rider on the horse holds a bow and is given a crown, which evokes the image of God in the Old Testament, riding a horse with a bow in his hand while conquering his uh, people's enemies. The Greek word for crown worn by the rider, Stephanos, which is the crown of victory. The rider is a conqueror going forward, conquering uh, conquering and to conquer. And it says, this, the scene of the first seal describes the spread of the gospel, which started powerfully at the Pentecost. So where are they starting the first seal? AD 34. AD 34. And then the rider on the horse, they're saying is, Christ, who's empowering his church to take forward. I can see where they get that. I can see the the you know, the references they're using to get that. If we do that, then the starting point is just 2,000 years ago, and we don't have all the history of the nations. We'd cut off much of human history if we did that. So the book would really start midway through the problem. Wouldn't contain all the powers. Wouldn't contain the counsel of the eternal. This book, if we start at 2,000 years ago, at AD 34, would it give us a history of how sin started? No. If we started 2,000 years ago? Or do we start midstream? It's already, we got a problem. We don't know where it started. We, but this, this is what's going on now. So another interpretation is that the first seal does not represent Christ, but represents a being who impersonates Christ. The scripture, before we get into that, teach of another being who attempted to take Christ's place. Does it do that? Did that being start his rebellion in heaven with open revolt or by claiming concern for the welfare of God's universe and the heavenly beings? How did that rebellion start? Open revolt? or purported concern for the welfare. Did that being start out, then that being, by the way, does the Bible actually talk about this being who wants to replace Christ actually sharing through Scripture multiple names of Christ or multiple symbolic representations that represent both Christ and this impersonator? Both of them share the name Lucifer, which means light bearer. In Peter, Jesus is the bright morning star, and in the Greek, that's phosphorus, and translated into Latin as Lucifer, and Jesus is the light, the light is all men, so we, they share that name. What about a serpent? Who's the, the, the serpent, the devil? That's the devil, right? But when the children of Israel were getting bit by certain serpents, what did Moses put up on a staff for them to look at, to heal them? A brass serpent. So we have a serpent representing both. What about a, a lion? Lion, roaring lion, seeking who may devour, represents the evil one. But Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah. 
So the Bible repeatedly shows that there's a conflict between a beings who pretend, one being who's pretending and purporting to be like the other being. Well, then would it surprise us if the, if the rider on the white horse, rather than referring to Christ, refers to Lucifer, the light bearer, and the origins of the rebellion in heaven? Could that be a possibility? Can you see how that might be? He, the, what did Lucifer ride out to do? To conquer. That was his goal, wasn't it? It wasn't to submit. It wasn't to, to, he wanted to rise up over and be a conqueror. That's what he wanted to do. This conquering thing is just the opposite. When you look at Jesus in Philippians, he who thought with quality with God was something to be grasped and not, but he humbled himself all the way down to the form of a servant, all the way down to the cross. Jesus is not conquering. Jesus is surrendering. The conqueror, the one who seeks to conquer with sword and might is not Jesus. This is the methods of Satan. So I'm going to suggest to you that the first seal, and this book is really a book of the great controversy and God's plan to heal and restore, represents Lucifer. And so from the remedy, 6, 1, and 2. Excitedly, I watched Jesus the Lamb open the first section of God's book of foreknowledge and began to reveal the well warfare between God and Satan. I heard one of the living creatures say in a powerful voice that rumbled like thunder, Come and see. So I looked and I saw the war began with a rider on a white horse holding a bow, wearing a crown, symbolizing Lucifer's beginning his war in heaven under the guise of righteousness, yet intent on inciting rebellion and war and achieving conquest. Let's jump to Monday's lesson. Yeah. yeah. Before we go there, yeah. I was reminded of when, when Christ's disciples asked him, what will be the signs of the coming of the age? The first thing he told them is there will be false messiahs. If he's in, if they say he's in the desert, do not seek him. If they say he's in the inner place, do not seek him. I think it harmonizes perfectly with the uh, the idea that this first this rider on a white horse. I mean, if you've seen a western movie, who's on the white horse with the white hat? With the white hat, it's it's the hero, or it's the villain impersonating the hero. Yep. Monday's lesson, Revelation six three and four from the NIV. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. What does this mean? Literal or symbolic? Okay. Let's read the second paragraph um, in uh, Monday's lesson. The second seal describes the consequences of rejecting the gospel beginning in the second century. Notice we're, we're placed in human history again. Way downstream from... But as Christ is waging spiritual warfare through the preaching of the gospel, the forces of evil render strong resistance. Inevitably, persecution follows. The writer does not do the killing. Instead, he takes peace from the earth. As a result, persecution inevitably follows. Now, I'm really taking a position, I'm taking it pretty strongly, that these seals do not represent the Christianity and starting at the first century. I've given the reason for the first seal, and if we go through, you will find there is a consistent underlying evidence base that every seal has a better application than what they're applying it to. So in this case, if you read what was stated, and reason it out, are there problems with the interpretation that this started in the second century rather than some other point in human history? Absolutely. Well, what does this writer do? It says he takes peace from the earth. 
Are you telling me that there was peace on the earth before the second century AD? We had peace on the earth until then. That's when peace was taken. Prior to that, earth was at peace. Is that your position? Anybody? Or is there peace on earth prior to the advent of Christ? Was there peace on earth during Christ's 33 years? Was there peace on earth since Christ's resurrection? When was there, historically, genuine peace on earth? The Garden of Eden. And this rider takes peace from the earth. When do you think peace really got taken from the earth? Wasn't it in Eden? And somehow this writer is able to do that. And when he takes peace from the earth, he causes people to slay each other. Causes people to slay each other. That's what it says, and to make men slay each other. He was given a large sword. Well, he would have then the power of death. He brings death, doesn't he? What's the power of death? Right, exactly. Remember it says in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ shared in their humanity by his death he might destroy him holds the power of death that is the devil. Remember the devil's power? Life eternal equals knowing God. Eternal death equals not knowing God. So Satan is the father of lies. So he tells lies that we believe. We don't know God. We separate from the source of life. It brings death. This writer breaks down peace and brings death to people. Was there a time in human history when human beings knew God and trusted God completely and lived in a face-to-face relationship with God? And was there a time when that state of being changed? And what was it that changed that state of being? Remember, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness, which caused me to be survival-driven. That leads to acts of sin. This is a terminal condition. And so this is at a review on Herald, January 5, 1886, written by Ellen White. See if you believe it. Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character, not in regard to the flavor of the fruit. That wasn't what the lie was about in regard to God's character, changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And what happened after they believed lies? Was peace taken from the earth? And what happened in the first generation of children? Men slew each other. Cain kills Abel. And then by Genesis 6, we're only in the sixth chapter of Genesis, what's described as the human race at that point? They are violent and violent all the time. That's Genesis 6 description. So what might be another interpretation that is a broader and more encompassing and actually applies to the time when peace was taken from the earth and violence and slaying quickly began? This is out of the remedy. Revelation 6, 3 and 4. When Jesus the Lamb opened the second section of God's book of foreknowledge, I heard another living creature say, come and see. Then I saw a rider on a fiery red horse holding a large sword, symbolic of Satan's lies about God, severing the bonds of love and trust and inciting fear and selfishness and resulting in people killing each other. 
Comments? Yes. Is it the sword another symbol? Because Christ has a, a two-edged sword. Yes, it is a symbol. And we'll come to it in just a moment. Revelation 6, 5 and 6 from the NIV. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wage, three quarts of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Literal, symbolic. What does it mean? Oil's Holy Spirit. Okay, it's important for us to keep in our minds as we un- unpack the meaning of this. Wine is the philosophy. Perhaps. Wine could represent the, you know, the wine of Babylon represents the philosophy. That could represent that. But Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my wine, he said, this wine is my blood that's shed for you. So, could, so the wine, we have to keep our open. Is it the philosophy? Is it the, is it the life of Christ? What, what is it? So that's good. Keep that open as we unpack it. Other thoughts? Let's see what the lesson says. Last paragraph, it says, The scene of the third seal points to further consequences of rejecting the gospel, beginning in the fourth century, as the church gained political power. If the white horse represents the preaching of the gospel, the black horse denotes the absence of the gospel and the reliance on human tradition. Grain in the Bible symbolizes the word of God. In rejection of the gospel, uh, the rejection of the gospel inevitably results in famine of the word of God, similar to the one prophesied by Amos. Well, in the Greek, the Greek word translated scales also has another valid English word. And some of the translations use that. If you look at a variety of translations, you'll see another word. Instead of scales, they have the word yoke. Y-O-K-E, not Y-O-L-K. Yoke. Now, if we put that word in there instead, does it give you a different meaning? I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a yoke in his hand. Does that lead your mind in a different direction than scales in his hand? A yoke. What's a yoke do? Binds you together and also typically puts burdens on you. Binds you and burdens you. No, Christ's yoke also binds and, and burdens. It bind, it's the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Yes, but there's a burden. It's a light one. And the yoke is the yoke of love, which heals and binds us to him in love. And then he helps share the burdens of life with us, but it still does that. So if we agree in the great controversy view of the first two seals, does that lead us to any insights regarding any type of yoke this rider put on humanity? This rider started out pretending to be an angel of light. He's going to make things better, but he's actually seeking to conquer and take over. He then tells lies to the human species. We break trust with God. We're now slaying each other. And now blackness and darkness comes on us because we're yoked to something. We're tied to something. Doesn't the yoke magnify the amount of work that gets done, whether it's beneficial work or destructive work? So if you have two oxen yoked together, the amount of work you get is more than two independent oxen. So if we're yoked to Satan, the amount of destructive work that gets done is more than he would do himself. Oh, I like that too. That's good. Would it be the yoke of fear and selfishness? The yoke uh, that ties us to Christ, Ellen White specifically says, that is the yoke of love. 
It's the bond of love that ties us to Christ. That's the yoke. Then would the yoke that ties us to the evil one be fear and selfishness? Believing the lies and and, and being tied to false systems of self-preservation, paganism, and all the things that we do to try to protect ourselves from the retaliatory God constructs that are out there. Could be a reference that we're bound to this sin nature? Yes, that, that also. That's the fear and selfishness. Yeah, the, the sin nature is that carnal drive of, of, you know, as soon as they sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, and they immediately tied leaves to protect themselves. That is the carnal nature. Fear-driven, self-preservation, survival drives. That's it. Yeah. the world system. Yes. Yeah. And it says in many places, the only result of that, their minds are dark and depraved, or the light that they once had goes out and becomes dark. Black horse. Yeah. What about the wheat and the barley? Wheat and barley can, and oil and wine. Wheat and barley can be made into bread and symbolic of the bread of life, the word of God. What do you think it means that it's represented as having a high cost for the wheat and the barley, and there are famine conditions? What, what would that represent and mean? Famine conditions. Starving, and this is both Old and New Testament. Read what Ellen White describes about the people of Israel in the Old Testament and how they were starving because of their traditions and their distortions and all the rules they put in. The conception of God, Isaiah says, darkness covers the people, a gross darkness the people. Why? Because they had all this pagan mythology built into their belief systems. And then Christ came to throw all that darkness off to be the light of the world. So we have that going on. That the truth about God, as represented in his word, would be scarce. And because of scarcity, there would be a famine of truth would occur in which people would be starving for the truth about God. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And I do think the wine represents the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so here it um, is from the remedy. When Jesus the Lamb opened the third section of God's book of foreknowledge, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked and saw a black horse, symbolic of humanity, necrotic, with lies about God. Its rider was holding a yoke in his hand, symbolic of the spiritual enslavement that occurs when the mind is bound to lies about God. Then I heard a voice coming from the four living creatures saying, A handful of wheat and three handfuls of barley will cost an entire day's pay, but the oil and wine won't be destroyed. Which means that the lies about God will be so pervasive that a famine of spiritual truth will occur and humanity will be near spiritual starvation, but the oil of truth and the wine of God's remedy will not be destroyed. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Any thoughts about that? Do you see the symbolism? Are you comfortable so far with the idea that this book with the seven seals is the book about the entire great controversy? Or do you, are you uncomfortable and think we should start it at the first century. Which, which is more sensible? Seems to me that it's much more sensible that this is the great controversy that's being described here for the various reasons we've outlined. Tuesday's lesson, Revelation 6, 7, and 8 from the NIV. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. 
What do you think it means? Literal or symbolic? Okay, so, so symbolic seal one, symbolic seal two, symbolic seal three, symbolic seal four. Okay, good, good. Happy with that. What's this rider going to bring? He's going to bring death. Okay? And what is the basis of death? We've talked about it in one of the ones already. The basis, the cause, the underlying reasons for death. It's obviously lies we believe that break our connection from God. This is the basis of death. So this rider is going to go out and spread more distortions about God that sever people's connection from God. What is Hades? What's it represent? The place of the dead, the grave. Now, this could potentially represent the place of the physical body grave, but it could also represent the place devoid of God's living presence, devoid of God's principles, devoid of God's law, devoid of God's truth, devoid of God's love, because a place devoid of God is a place of death, right? So it may represent a system that is devoid of all the protocols and principles and presence of life. It may, it may symbolically represent that. Keep that in mind. So the lies told will lead to a system potentially devoid of God's love and truth and result in deaths of millions, a quarter of the world's population, will embrace this system of thinking. What does it mean that this power has the ability to, or this, this rider on the horse, has the ability to kill by sword, and this is where we're going to talk about the sword, famine, plague, and the beast of the earth? What's it mean? Let's talk about the sword first. Is this a literal sword? Or is this a, is this a symbolic sword? Okay, what's the sword mean? Okay, so what's the sword? You mentioned that there's a sword of God. A double-edged sword. What's the double-edged sword of God representative of? The word of God. The truth. Okay, so if God's sword is the truth... What do you think the sword of the rider of death might be? Lies. That's the sword. That's the sword of lies. Okay? Very very good. Um, <clears throat> and what kind of war is going on between Christ and Satan? Is it a physical war or is it a spiritual war? A war of ideas. Remember, we, we live in the world. We don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. This is a war of ideas. In Revelation, where it talks about, we'll get to Revelation 12 eventually, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. That word war is polemo. From where we get polemic, it's a war of, of concepts, ideas. It's an argument of beliefs and systems of thinking. So the sword here is the sword of the false ideas and distortions. What about famine? What would famine represent? Starving people from truth about God. This is it. So we can kill people by getting you believe lies. You're gorging yourself on lies. And think about gorging yourself. And think about, we can see this in all the, the obviously false and grotesque religions of the world, of the paganism with child sacrifice and Satanism. And that's so obvious they gorge on those beliefs. It's just destructive. But then we can, it's harder to see when it's gorging on false Christian beliefs. But we can see some of that in history too. 
the Dark Ages, the burning people at the stake, the Crusades, the Inquisition. We can see they were gorging on false beliefs and, and, and the grave was filling up behind. We can see that too. But So one way that this, this, beast, uh, this horse kills this rider is by getting people to, to ingest and believe a lot of false things. But another way is to starve them from the truth. Just starve them. Just keep the truth never getting to them. Restricting access to the word of God. Tying the word of God up where people can't get it. What about pestilence? What does pestilence represent? What is a pestilence? It's another word for death. Well, it's a word for something that leads to death in the way I think about it. In Greek, it's death. Okay. Pestilence. Disease process. Disease. Living out of harmony with the laws of heaven. Which the result of is death. So what would pestilence represent here? Something that spreads rapidly, brings destruction and death. Could that be sinfulness of the soul? The actual selfishness and vileness of human sinfulness is the pestilence. Promoting selfishness. Promoting the idea that, that you should watch out for yourself at the expense of others. Do we find that in religions? What do beasts represent? The beasts of the earth. So this is the beasts of the earth. What do the beasts of the earth represent? Human government. Two things. One is human governments. This rider will use human governments to destroy and corrupt. And also, beasts represent in the Bible pagan deities. Marduk was represented by a bull. Dagon was represented by a fish. Heket was represented by a frog. They also rep- and all of those systems are systems of works, appeasement, punishing if you don't do it, and so forth. This pagan, human works, imperialistic construct. So human governments, pagan deities, all work on the coercive system. So from the remedy... When Jesus the Lamb opened the fourth section of God's book of foreknowledge, I heard the four living creatures say, Come and see. Then I saw a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, symbolic of a church fighting against the truth and promoting a false remedy. And the grave was filling up behind him. It had power over one-fourth of the world's population and could destroy by warring against the truth with lies about God, by restricting access to the written word of God, and thereby inciting spiritual famine by indulging selfishness, the pestilence of the soul, and by introducing wild, beastly, pagan traditions. It's amazing it only had power over one-fourth of the population. I would have guessed three-fourths of the population or more. Well, it depends on perhaps maybe we are now, by by the time we get to the fourth seal, we're now dealing with a Christian dispensation. We've, we've, had, we've, we've had the exception in heaven. We had peace taken from the earth. We've had violence going through human history. We had the famine of the Old Testament times when things were kept from people and Christ came to be the bread of life because the bread of life wasn't going to be destroyed and the wine wasn't going to be destroyed. And so he came. And now I think we're in the Christian dispensation. In the Christian dispensation, do we have an organization that rules one-fourth of the earth's population? Christianity is about one-fourth of the earth's population. And is that system 
been warring the truth by misrepresenting God as an imperial dictator, by historically restricting access to the word of God until the Reformation, uh, and uh, promoting the pestilence of selfishness with all the indulgences and the other things that it promoted, and also using governments and introducing into Christianity all types of pagan concepts. So I think we're in the Christian dispensation with this one. It's a historic, you can look historically at an organization that, that met and did all these things. Wednesday's lesson, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Going to get into some maybe more closer. If, if, if our timeline is generally right, and this, one, this, this horse was representing the Dark Ages church, then maybe we're going to get closer to where we live as we continue to do the seals. You see, we're coming closer to the end of the, end of the, end of the deal. Let's see what this one says. Revelation 9, excuse me, 6, 9 through 11. This is out of the NIV. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Literal or symbolic? Symbolic. Okay, good guys, good. You know, five seals so far were symbolic. Five seals. Wait till we get to the next one. What's symbolized by the altar? What's the altar symbolically represent? Both the sanctuary, whatever that is, right? And in the Old Testament sanctuary, what did they burn on the golden altar? Incense. Incense. What's incense represent? Prayers. The prayers of, of, the, of the wicked or the righteous? So, so if the prayers are ascending from the golden altar, what's the golden altar represent? Your heart. And the souls are under this altar representing the sanctuary in heaven. And so this, this is symbolic. Let's see what the first paragraph says in Wednesday's lesson. The word soul in the Bible denotes the whole person, Genesis 2-7. The martyrdom of God's faithful and persecuted people is portrayed here in terms of sacrificial blood poured out at the base of the earthly sanctuary's altar of sacrifice. This would be the bronze altar they're referring to. God's people have suffered injustice and death for their faithfulness to the gospel. They cry out to God, asking him to step in and to vindicate them. These texts concern the injustice done here on earth. They are not saying anything about the state of the dead. And after these people do not... After all, these people do not appear to be enjoying the bliss of heaven. Has the lesson gone literal on us? They're not wrong that the soul, the word soul, can mean the whole person. It can mean that. But the lesson has chosen one possible biblical meaning for the word soul, the whole person. And in fact, there's another meaning. And the meaning they've chosen is the wrong meaning. That's not what this means. The Bible has another meaning for the word soul. Let me give you a couple of Bible texts and ask, ask you, in your judgment, as you hear these texts, does soul in these texts mean the whole person? This is 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Soul here mean whole person? Or some part of your person. How about this one? This is Jesus speaking in Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Is this the whole person here? Or some part of you that's different from your body? 
I'm, I'm waiting for an answer. Some part of you that's different from your body, or is it the whole person? Now the soul, it's, this, he's referring to Genesis creation, and God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Yes, the soul can mean the whole person, and there it does. In these two passages I read, though, is it meaning the whole person, or is it meaning some part of the whole person? Okay, so then when we read Revelation, we have to be discerning. If we're going to use the Bible, we have two options, and it can mean the whole person, but they've just said this is symbolic, not literal. Why would you think there's a whole person up under the altar crying out? Why would you think that? Why would they want to say that? It makes no sense at all. It must be some subset of the person. And so the Greek word for soul in the New, in the New Testament is suke, from where we get psyche or psychiatry or psychology. And it means your individuality, your unique personhood. And if you use the computer metaphor, I mean, we have three parts. We just read it in the Thessalonian text, body, soul, spirit. The computer has three parts, hardware, software, and energy. Right? Everybody with me? So the body is the hardware, the machine. Don't be afraid of somebody who can destroy your machine. Don't be afraid of somebody who can destroy the machine. Especially if you have a wireless connection to a server, a cloud, and everything's backed up on the cloud. If somebody, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the data on the cloud, the psyche, the, the software, your individuality, your unique personhood. They can't touch that. They can touch your body. They can't touch your soul, your unique identity. And then, of course, the energy source, the electricity for the computer, or the spirit, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, from where we get pneumonia or pneumatic, and it means wind or breath or breath of life, the energy source. And so what happens to a human being on earth today when they die, according to scripture? The body returns to dust. Got a lot of texts in Old Testament that say that, and they're referenced in the Latin notes. Body returns to dust. That's one part. The spirit, panuma, the life energy, returns to God who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12.7. What about the soul, the software, the individuality? They're safely, secure, stored on the heavenly servers in heaven, known as the Lamb's Book of Life. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, now notice Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians of the second coming and the resurrection. This is going to blow your mind. Adventists have never known how to deal with this. They've always jumped over. It's like, and they kind of mumble this part because it doesn't make sense, the traditional view. But when you understand what I just taught you, it's beautiful. It is absolutely incredible that somebody 2,000 years ago could get this right. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. When your computer runs out of power or you yank the battery and unplug it, what condition does it go into? It sleeps. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Notice, Jesus is coming from heaven, and he's bringing with him people who are in a state of sleep. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. That's who he's bringing. Keep going with the text. The Lord himself will come down out of heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we which are alive, we caught up together with them in the air. But notice, one text, we have the same dead people coming down from heaven and coming up out of the grave. How is that possible? Because we have three parts. When we die, the physical body returns to dust. 
And when Christ returns, he'll make new upgrades. We get upgrades, by the way. Have you ever looked in the mirror and go, boy, I sure am glad to know this is not as good as the Lord can do. (laughs) The older you get, the more you think that. Okay? Okay, we get get upgrades when the Lord comes. Isn't that exciting? Okay? Of the hardware. Of the hardware. But what's coming down out of heaven? The heavenly servers, the Bible calls it the Lamb's Book of Life, where the individualities, the suke, the psyche, the people are stored, and symbolically they're under the altar in the sanctuary in heaven. And so he brings them with him. When he returns, downloads them into new hardware, energy from God, they live again. Upgraded software. Yeah. <laughs> it says what happens to them in the text here? They are purified, and he gives them white robes. So what happens? They're given purified characters. This is what, what, what Karen was alluding to. And so they're being cleansed. And they're under the altar. So what's being cleansed? The sanctuary is being cleansed. This is the cleansing of the sanctuary. This would be describing events after the great apostasy in which the church caused famine by holding the Bible or the truth away from people and perpetuated lies about God for promoting the pagan myths and inciting the church uh, and, and promoting selfishness, a time when the cleansing of the sanctuary would happen. When did that begin? 1844. And this is important. So here's from the remedy. When Jesus the Lamb opened the fifth section of God's book of foreknowledge, I saw an altar, and beneath it I saw the individual identities of those who were killed because they embraced the truth about God's character of love and faithfully revealed his methods, rejecting the lies about God. Their lives call out, Almighty Lord, who has always done what is who always does what is right. How long until your diagnosis of the inhabitants of the earth is made known and you set right the wrongs done us? Then they were each given white clothes to symbolize that they were healed to be like Jesus in character. They were told to be patient a little longer until the rest of their co-workers and friends completed their witness and were martyred for the truth. Thursday's lesson, Revelation 6, 12-14, this is out of the NIV. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Literal or symbolic? Symbolic. You guys are real heretics because this is not taken symbolic by the quarterly. And it's not taken symbolic by the Adventist church. Suddenly we've gone symbolic, 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 literal. Where is the tripwire here that says, we are no longer in symbolism, we've gone literal? Where is that indication for you? Do you see that anywhere? But that's what we've done. And the historic SDA view here is that the earthquake was the literal earthquake of the Great Lisbon earthquake in 1755. The sun turning black as sackcloth was the dark day of May 19, 1780, with the moon being a blood moon at that same event. The meteor shower over the Atlantic in November 13, 1833 is claimed to be the stars falling from the sky. And so they take this very literal as signs and evidences leading up. Now, what is the problem here, guys? 
There are serious problems. And I think you can, with great confidence, reject this view. Understand, though, that peoples and powers don't like to suggest that in anything that we've ever interpreted couldn't, in fact, be updated or, or revised. It's always, you know, once it's stated, it's always the way it has to be. But why can you have confidence that this is, this is not to be literal? And it does, or at least it doesn't apply to those historic events. How can you have confidence in that? All of the sixth seal should happen together. Okay. I love where you're going with that. Okay. So, unified. Yes. First, first big red flag for me, it suddenly shifts from symbolism after five seals of symbolism, suddenly we've gone literal? That should raise anybody's flag. Why would we shift to literal when we've been symbolic this whole time? There's no indication anywhere that we've suddenly gone literal in the seals. They just do it. Second, if we take the earthquake, sun, moon, stars literally and apply them to the events above, then what Wendell said, what, what about the mountains and the islands being moved out of their location? This, this is one seal. It should all happen at the same time. Why hasn't it happened? Right? That doesn't make sense. And then if we take this literal and put it back at the time that, that 1755, 1780, and 1833, every one of those events of the sixth seal then are taking place before the fifth seal. Because the fifth seal is the cleansing of the sanctuary. Those souls under the altar crying out are given white robes. This is the cleansing of the sanctuary. And that started in 1844. But now suddenly with the sixth seal, we're moving back before that to say this is applying. It doesn't apply. It doesn't work. Final reason for me that I've gotten so far, I might come up with more reasons later. It makes the signs of this event far removed from the generation living at the time of the second advent. So they have no actual impact on the people today. These supposed signs, are, I think, are, are there at this time in history to help us. So what might be a symbolic rather than a literal interpretation? Where is the war between Christ and Satan fought? What are the weapons? Lies. Satan's what? Lies? Yep, right? Coercion? Selfishness? God's weapons? Truth? Love? Liberty? Yep, good. So could this be symbolic of a warfare moving to its final phase before Christ comes? <clears throat> and through human history and Bible history, you can find this through scripture, what has the sun and moon and stars always been a symbolic reference for or whom? Heavenly beings. Heavenly beings and or God. Sun worship, worshiping the creator, worshiping the one who controls the heavenly bodies. So these heavenly bodies have always been references rep uh, symbolically to God himself. And, and most of paganism evolved from worship of the sun. Right. That's exactly right. Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome. So if we allow that symbolic reference, could the blackening of the sun, the blood moon, the falling star symbolically represent the loss of a belief in God through humanity? So I'll read from the remedy. 
I watched as Jesus the Lamb opened the sixth section of God's book of foreknowledge. There was a great shaking of ideas in the minds of people on earth. Their unshakable confidence in religion was broken as the evolutionary theory, like a black cloth obscuring the sun, covered their minds. The moon bled dry for believers, and the stars fell from their high place of esteem, shaken by the mighty winds of changing ideas. The mystery of the cosmos was rolled back like a scroll as science and astronomy advanced. Every high place of worship was removed from its place of esteem and every island of belief was thrown aside. I'm not going to be dogmatic. You can prefer the the 1700s stuff if you want. But but this seems to fit. I mean, we're we're symbolic, not being literal. And have we not seen this happen? And what's happening when the darkness that is covering the world? Revelation 6, 15 through 17 The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Literal, symbolic. Both. Okay. Okay, what part's literal? What part's symbolic? I believe there will be those that literally pray for the rocks to fall on them. They will literally be hiding in caves trying to hide themselves from the glory of God's second coming. Okay. So I do have the question, how much of this is literal and how much of this is symbolic? What type of war is being fought? What type of weapons again? Where is the battlefield? What's the biblical definition of wrath? Letting go. That's right. You guys are all right. Romans chapter 1 is a good place to go for that. Where God, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, and therefore God gave them up. Therefore God gave them up. Therefore God gave them up. Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, and 28. You'll see that. So God's wrath is letting people go to reap what they have chosen for themselves. No longer intervening to heal and restore. When you understand design law, it makes perfect sense. If you understand imperial law, it makes no sense at all. Imperial law, somebody has done crime and we let them go, they get away with it. They get to go out and do more. That ain't fair. We've got to punish them. We've got to hold them. We've got to do something. But when you understand design law, and the alcoholic with liver disease and liver cirrhosis from years of drinking... And you're the doctor who has just saved them barely through a very difficult ICU stay. And they insist on no rehab and going home to drink. You let them go. And what's going to happen? Will the doctor kill them? No. No. And so over and over again, when you understand design law, God has been intervening in the human race since Adam's sin to hold at bay the ultimate consequences, not the temporal consequences, the ultimate consequences of destroyed individuality for all eternity. He's been holding at bay that, giving us opportunity to partake of what Christ has provided so that we can have eternal healing. But some will refuse it and so harden themselves, so destroy within themselves the faculties that respond to love and truth that one day, just like in Hosea, God says, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. Let him go. There's nothing more I can do for him. So the rocks and the mountains are the consequences of their choice. Potentially. So why do these people who have rejected God call for the mountains 
to fall on them and hide them from God. Why do they do it? Because they can't handle the truth, she says. Have you ever seen somebody who is doing something that they know is wrong? They're doing something that is, that, uh, that, uh, and how do they respond when they're not ready to have it brought out into the open? And it's something, and somebody knows what they've been doing. What happens when they come into that person's presence? Do they want to stay in that person's presence? They want to leave. Okay. Why did Judas hang himself? Why do these people ask for the mountains to hide them? What does it tell us about sin, that this is what happens? See, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death, as James 1. Uh, Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature will, notice, from that nature will reap destruction, Galatians 6.18. This is the unavoidable end result of unremitted sin. And so from 1st Sucks of the Message, 235, Ellen White writes... We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Design law. God's wrath letting them go when there's nothing more that can be done. So, in closing, from the remedy, these verses from the remedy. But the leaders on earth, presidents, kings, princes, generals, rich and poor, hide from the truth in the caves of their own lies and amongst the rocks of the mountains of false ideas. They begged for their ideas to be true. They cried out, hide us from the truth. Hide us from him who sits on the throne uh, of truth and protect us from what happens when Jesus the Lamb lets us go. For the day when he lets us go has come, and who can stand on their own? So, in closing, after reading Revelation 6, what picture of God do you have? Do you have a picture of an angry deity who uses power to coerce and punish those who won't do what he says and brings plagues down upon them? Or do you have a loving being who has been working to overcome infection to his creatures that are killing them in order to restore us back to his original intention in Eden. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that when Adam broke trust with you and changed his condition and infected himself with fear and selfishness, that you didn't abandon us. That in fact, you stepped down. You began intervening and interceding. And that you've been working through all human history to battle the evil one, to hold at, at bay the, the forces of evil, and, to, to, and you sent your son to be the remedy to heal and to cure. We ask now at this time in human history, you open our minds that we can see the grand, the grand picture, the grand conflict, and we can see how you've been working, and we can communicate that effectively, and we can take a message that will wake people up, prepare them, so that you can come soon and we can see you face to face. In your holy name, amen.